Good morning, comrades, and uh, welcome to another week of uh, Workers' Power here on uh, 4 Triple Z. Uh, you're, you're tuned in to uh, Bill. Uh, I've got uh, Calypso in the studio with me. I'm back. And oh, we've got uh, uh, Jackson uh, at the remote studio. Hello. Wow. How? Hey, I'm pretty impressed with my technology prowess. It's good to hear you there, Jackson. Um, thank you thank you to um, Artcard and uh, thanks to Zedlines for uh, bringing this up to date. Today on the show, we, we've got an excellent uh, interview that uh, Jackson and I all, uh, recorded uh, last night on Zoom with, uh, with Alan from the Brisbane Labor History Association, and, and that's going to take a good chunk of our show, but we'll also manage to squeeze in some workers' power, uh, workers' action from uh, across the continent and around the globe. And, of course, we'll, we will finish off with the world-famous scallywag of the week. But uh, first off, oh, just just because we've used that technology, could could you give uh, Jackson? Could you give us the uh, acknowledgement of country? Sure thing. So we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast, the Yuggera and Turrbal people. This land was stolen, never ceded. We pay respects to elders past and present. We also acknowledge all First Nations comrades listening today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people in their struggle for, struggles for recognition, reparations and land rights. We live and benefit on stolen land. It's time to pay the rent. It's like you're in the room with us. It is. He sounds <laughs> Awesome. Right on. Well, we, as I said, we've got um, plenty of... Uh, we've got an action-packed show, so uh, let's get straight into it and uh, uh, into the First Nations workers' action. And uh, there's a coronial inquest into the killing of a First Nation man, uh, Raymond Knoll. Uh, Calypso, can you read us through that? A four-day inquest into the death and custody of Raymond Knoll... Lindsay Thomas in Melbourne examined the police pursuit rules. The Ganai Gunjitmara and Waradjuri man was thrown from his car after colliding with parked cars and an oncoming vehicle in June 2017 while officers chased behind. Auntie Debbie and Uncle Ray, Mr Thomas's parents, remembered him as a gentle giant who loved his family. We will remember how close he was with his brothers and how they would wake up early in the morning and wake everyone up with their laughter. We will remember that he was a proud Aboriginal man, they said. As Aboriginal people, we live with the fear of how racism will affect us every day. Being harassed or mistreated by police is one of our greatest fears, and our hearts are broken because that fear became reality for our son. Mr Thomas's death occurred after Victoria Police introduced pursuit policies in 2016 following a series of recommendations from coroner John Oll. His recommendations followed an inquest into the deaths of teenagers Sarah Booth, 17, in 2006, and Jason Kumar, 15, in 2009. Mr. Ole is re-examining pursuit rules now, heading an inquest into Mr. Thomas's death. What unfolded began as a routine registration check on his car, which passed a police car in North Coat at around 11pm on June 25, 2017. His car was unregistered and the officers performed a U-turn and activated their siren. What started with a brief encounter quickly became a high-speed police pursuit with the police vehicle reaching speeds of 156 kilometres per hour, council assisting the coroner Michael Rivette said on Monday, less than a minute after the registration checked. Just 
21 seconds after the pursuit was called by the officers in the car, it ended. Mr Thomas lost control of his car and veered onto the wrong side of the road. He hit several parked cars before colliding with an oncoming vehicle driven by a man who was physically unharmed. He was thrown from the car and suffered fatal injuries. Even after Your Honour's recommendation and even after many of them being adopted, we find ourselves here today, Mr Rivett said. The inquest examines the circumstances and appropriateness of the decision to follow his vehicle and of the decision by Victoria police officers to instigate a pursuit. It looked at whether the decision, having been made, was in compliance with the 2016 pursuit policy and the adequacy of Victoria Police's methods of ensuring officers involved in pursuits are trained and equipped to comply with the policy. The inquest began on the 25th. On the 30th, the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre reported that Victoria Police had riot police and their vehicles, weapons of colonial terror and killing, to sit directly outside the Victorian Coroner's Court today on the second last day of Raymond Knoll's police pursuit killing in custody inquest hearing. The Coroner has honoured the dignity and respect of Raymond Knowles' family and the large Aboriginal and broader community support bearing witness in his inquest. Victoria Police and the Victorian Government responds by bringing the tools they use to kill Raymond Knoll and placing them metres from where his family and community are demanding accountability for his police killing. On the final day of the coronal inquest, the 2nd of July, the family of Raymond Knoll had held a smoking ceremony and a press conference. Uncle Ray Thomas, father of Raymond Knoll, shares a powerful family statement. He is deeply missed by us, the family and the extended community in Melbourne. His brothers are devastated. They were really close. There is a missing link. This hole in our heart will never heal. It will be there forever. We want to hold those responsible to be held accountable for them to realise the grief they have caused for something as minor as an unregistered car. This is not a crime. Raymond Knoll is not a criminal. He drove to the shops to buy chocolate and they decided to pursue. The age reported that Raymond's father, Raymond Thomas, told the court about an interaction his son had with police when he was 10 or 11 years old. On holidays in country Victoria... Raymond Knoll and his cousins were playing on a wood chip pile when two officers came along. His cousins ran off, but Raymond Thomas and his brothers were apprehended and handcuffed. Police told the boys, if you move, I'll shoot you. It was a lesson learned, Mr Thomas said, in how serious an interaction with police can get. The Age also reported the counsel assisting the coroner, Michael Rivette, asked Mr Oll to reinstate a key recommendation that he made in 2015, that minor traffic and property offences are not grounds to initiate a pursuit which had been scrapped by Victoria Police in 2016. Mr Rivette also recommends the policy include questions police should ask themselves including why they were pursuing in the first place and whether their conduct might contribute to the behaviour of the driver they were chasing. He said training was gravely inadequate and called on more practical training to occur. The final outcome of the inquest is not yet known. All because he couldn't afford to get his car registered, the poor fella. That's... Uh... Also, when you, you think about that added detail they included, which I think is highly relevant, that uh, when he was 10 or 11, yeah. him and his brothers were uh, handcuffed for no crime and, and threatened by, by the police. So he's, he's just driving his car to get some chocolate. And 
within uh, 20 seconds is how long this pursuit occurred. Uh, Cop pulls a sharp U-turn, turns on their sirens. Um, That's an incredibly distracting thing. reaching speeds of up to 156 kilometres an hour. In 21 seconds. That's how long the pursuit lasted. Hand on heart, I don't think I've ever 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 driven that fast in my life 100 i don't think i've ever gone over 150 you know hand on heart eh? you know that's just too fast too many things can go wrong you know even on a straight stretch of road now nah, that's just, that's poor poor behavior by by the uh, police if i was in that car in that situation i would believe that the police were like driving a full-on collision course towards yeah. me that speed that quickly for no reason yeah it's not it's not uh, the 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 uh, victim that that was driving at 156 kilometers an hour so in fact uh, you, uh, you know take away the registration of a vehicle the only one who was uh, really breaking if you can call it breaking the law the only one that was breaking the law was the police the police they are 100% the reason that caused him to lose control of the vehicle mm, okay well um, but as we know police can't break the law they are the law <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. Right yeah. on. Well, I mean, like, literally, though, they actually have, like, unlimited speed licenses or something. That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy, yeah. There, there's yeah, um, but I think that uh, thing from his childhood is really important because it's not like... I mean, for most of us, hearing something like that, like, imagining yourself in that position, you're thinking, oh, yeah, i just got to get away from the cops. I don't want to get arrested. But... Um, he would have been terrified Aboriginal for his people, life. Like, mo- lots of Aboriginal people have had similar experiences, um, like where they, like he had in his childhood, where he learned that the cops are going to kill you, basically. And, yeah. Hi, and uh, welcome to Workers' Power. I'm... Uh, uh, joined uh, by uh, uh, on Zoom over Zoom, but by our guest uh, uh, from B- Brisbane uh, Labor History Association, Alan Gardner. We've also got Jackson here with us, and uh, yeah, we're going to Alan's going to uh, uh, have a chat with us about the uh, the, the history of, of, of the writing from from workers. And uh, um, so, uh, first off, uh, Alan, can you can you uh, just let us know a little bit about yourself and and, and your background? Uh, yes, Bill, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I myself am a member of the Brisbane Labor History Association, not because I'm a historian, but just because um, I've got a great interest in uh, Labor history, especially in the history of the Brisbane area. Um, I became a, you know interested in politics and, and, and got my commitment to to you know, working class struggles and the socialism through the Seagweb dispute of the 1980s, when uh, it was it was actually a very personal um, uh, event for me because my father had a uh, long time been a, a linesman, linesman with the the uh, electricity department, which became Seagweb. And by the time the uh, strike happened, he was late in his career, and he was sort of snowed by the. Um, by the bosses to become a foreman um, rather than a linesman, and, and so that they could sort of stick him on to the, uh, the or you know, sort of prevent him from taking the side of the of the linesman. He'd, he'd been a union member, but um, uh, he was he was wooed away and uh, and opposed the strikers. So it was a, a case for me of a, a major break with my with my father and my family because uh, I was. 
I, I had no no alternative but to support the strikers. And uh, being um, at the university at the time, I I went with some of the other radicals there to uh, to, to to any supporting kinds of uh, actions that were, were going on. Um, so that was my introduction to uh, to this whole area, and it became one that was focused on um, lit the literature that uh, that comes from that those workers' struggles like Sequib uh, into history, because um, that was my area of study really at university was was literature rather than history. So um, the um, the, but the extent to which um, uh, history and working class literature are, are uh, tied up is very close, as I hope we might be able to, to see as we go on. Yeah, and I, and I noticed that, that uh, you called it a digression here. We, we call it uh, getting to the point. And uh, what is working class literature? Yes, um, and when you introduced me, you said, uh, you know, we're going to talk about uh, writing by workers. Well, um, that is one way you could look at it, and it's a very, very productive way, and one that I think you can't stray very far from if, unless you become uh, pretty irrelevant. Um, the extent to which uh, workers themselves write about their own lives is going to have to be very close to anything you want to call working class literature or working class writing. Um, the, the whole question of is is working class literature literature by workers or about literature uh, workers or is it any literature that is um, uh, intentionally for workers? Which which of it is? Which of those um, is best? And I think you've got to look at all of them, and you've got to be careful because um, there are some you know, representations of workers, even representations of workers by workers themselves who become writers that are um, really quite uh, um, pro-establishment and uh, or you know, just part of um, general mainstream popular cultural uh, representations of workers which aren't very um, useful to uh, workers in their own um, you know, lifestyles and, li and understanding their own lives or very truthful to, to uh, the history of our class. Um, so I don't think you can just uh, uh, limit it to literature that is um, about workers because it has to come from some perspective that uh, makes, the, um, makes it really worthwhile to, to study. Uh, and it can't be just by workers. Uh, it can't just be um, that which is um, uh, about workers in a general way or, 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 or just about workers pretending or uh, correctly assuming to be for workers. A whole lot of, lot of things come into it. And they're such, they, those bodies of um, writing are so diverse that it's going to be hard to, for us to keep a focus. So if you don't mind, I might just... Um, pretty much randomly talk about things as they come into my mind and hopefully into your guys' mind too. You know, I'd, I'd really be interested in um, what the whole idea of working class writing um, means to you. And, for instance, uh, could you guys um, say that you recognise the name Frank Hardy or know of any of the works of that writer? No. You, you don't know the name Frank Hardy? No. Well, these... He, at one point, he was Australia's uh, best-known communist, and this was uh, at a time when 
in the uh, mid 20th century at the height of the Cold War when um, communism was in the paper all the time and um, and uh, communists were demonised in a very big way. Well, Frank Hardy took a lot of it on his shoulders and it was mainly, because, well, he was a writer first and foremost. You know, and uh, his um, his novel, Power Without Glory, which was about a, uh, a, a Melbourne capitalist called John West, who... Um, was very big in the early 20th century and uh, um, had risen from working class roots by um, exploiting workers as in his gambling operations and became one of the the, uh, the doyens or the, um, the, the the pillars of respectable society in Victoria. And uh, so Power Without Glory is, is Frank Hardy's epic uh, um, um, exploration of how that kind of a life could happen and uh, how um, how such a capitalist could uh, distort the, the lives of so many people in uh, in urban working class Melbourne. It um, became a um, it, it was serialised uh, as a, a, a television show that was um, shown by the ABC, a very high quality production and. Uh, very a very popular one so it had had two lives a very popular and well read novel and then a very uh, popular and well watched television show in the i think the 70s so as you can say as i suppose my point is if um if you guys who you know were very very uh uh knowledgeable about uh, matters of the uh, of our class's history haven't heard of, of uh, Frank Hardy, it gives you an idea of just how important it is to keep telling our stories generally, especially the, the stories of our resistance, but also of, um, not forgetting uh, the writers who have uh, tried to um, help us by, by presentations that are often you know, more interesting to your average, writer, average worker than some dry, dusty um, history of a of of a, um, a union or a, a dispute or something like that. If, if, um, if a writer, a good poet or a good storyteller can bring to life some aspect of history, that could be, you know, a very good way to, um, to uh, you know, keep alive our, our, um, our class's history. Now, a lot of the... Um the, the the writings and good working class writings was was, was done by the uh, prior to the war that is was done by the uh, Australian Communist Party and members of that. Do, do you do you think the the uh, it was a race during the Cold War? Did you say a race? A race, you know, the the knowledge of them was, was oh a race. Yeah, I, I a race. Think, I see what you mean. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right about. Um, the importance of the uh, Communist Party, and um, uh, I, I say that with um, mixed, mixed feelings because uh, um, that was a party that um, had had some very um, proud history prior to that the period of the Stalinisation of um, of the communist movement internationally. Um, but even after its Stalinisation, it's um, you know it, it was. It was really such a dominant f factor 
uh, amongst activists uh, on the left and in, in political um, struggles and in uh, and in unions and workers struggles that it can't be ignored that and it can't be uh, even by um, its um, left wing detractors of, of whom I class myself we can't um, ignore the many uh, um, individuals in that party who did you know who, who were you know regardless of the shortcomings of that party uh as it's um as a, as a tool of a um a rather oppressive soviet uh rule um apart from that these individuals were often you know in any community and any anywhere you went wherever there was a struggle wherever there was some some you know good propaganda being put out uh, for, for purposes of social justice you go to the working committee where the people are actually doing the work and you're going to find that during the a whole lot of the 20th century the people you meet there are going to be uh, uh, members of the communist party or ex-members of the communist party or people who've had their education um got by you know um, joining that party um now that also included the writers uh and another aspect of the um the, the power of the australian communist party was that when the common turn made a turn to uh, encourage all the Western communist parties to be interventionist in the cultural sphere in their various countries, um, America or England or Australia, um, you had a real party there to put some organisational weight behind that turn. And so the um, the uh, Communist Party of Australia was was key and, and the power of all they all the, the volunteers and, and the member membership and the the funds that they could and, and and the work that they could put into it was put behind a number of cultural um initiatives such as the realist writers group uh in, in which had branches throughout uh, australia um the australian australasian book society which published um 81 books uh uh, in all, for, you know, not all of which were um, simple, you know, uh, simply telling the communist line. They were works of, of writers who were um, uh, associated with the Communist Party or simply just in the left. Um, and uh, other things like the Realist Film Unit, like the um, 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 the well, the, the the magazine Overland, which was very um, for a long time and then still is going, is a very important literary magazine in Australia. Uh, uh, emerged, um, you know, from uh, Communist Party uh, origins, um, and uh, and as I said, Frank Hardy was probably the best known of those Communist Party writers, but he was only one of um, of many, and uh, these. Um, these people tended to even dominate uh, Australian letters and culture generally, um, to some extent, because the the, um, the cultural wing of the uh, more conservative politics in Australia wasn't particularly interested in um, presenting or uh, Australian culture at all or, or promoting uh, Australian culture at all. It, it, it's, which is we might think is um, surprising because nationalism is one of the main ways in which um, uh, dominant cultural ideologies tend to be presented and uh, to, to, to workers like you. Know, this is this is very common in uh, or very prominent in um, 
in the matter of uh, wars and mili militarism, um, you know, you, you can't really get these workers to go into um, into battle and kill other workers from other countries unless you uh, instill them with the feeling that their nation is in some way what they belong to and, and that they are willing to die for. Um, and so it's, it's a, a nationalist ideology in the cultural sphere is, is often considered to be very important by the, the, um, the more mainstream forces in society. But uh, because of Australia's history as a, um, an out, a sort of an outpost of the British Empire, uh, there was a tendency for right-wing cultural figures to... Uh, to decide that uh, it's better to promote um, British uh, uh, ideas than Australian ones. And so they tended to leave the, um, the, the cultural sphere empty. And that was a vacuum that um, a lot of left-wing writers um, moved into. And uh, if you went trying to find a, a book to read in the um, middle 20th century, you're more likely to find one written by a... Um, a, a sympathiser or a member of the Communist Party than anything else. Apart from Frank Hardy, there were writers like Judah Watton and Dorothy Hewitt and actually very, very many um, uh, women writers, Catherine Susanna Pritchard and Betty Collins. Um, there, were, there were many uh, communist women's writers. Um, the um, I Can Jump Puddles by Ellen Marshall was an, a hugely successful book. Another one that was made into... A, um, a a movie that was very popular. Oh, no, not a movie. I think that was a television show. I can jump puddles. Um, so yes, the, um, the 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 Communist Party was extremely important in terms of anything that we might want to look at if we're looking for examples of working class writing or representations of specifically, particularly how life is affected by being. Uh, a member of a class that's um, sort of um, affected at all times by the needs of capitalism, quite, and or uh, um, uh, or any any um, representation of workers in struggle. Many many novels are based around major strikes, such as the Copper Crucible by Betty Collins, which was about the um, the Mount Isa mines dispute of the early sixties. That was such a big strike that um, that you know school school children in in Brisbane would um, be having fights um, based on the fact that uh, one of them might have had a fa father who was against the strikers in Mount Isa, and and those that had um, a father who was for it. You know, it, it divided. It was such an, a a big strike that it divided uh, the whole you know state. Um, and again, something that uh, these these sorts of um, t histories tend to be forgotten. But um, if you read um, Betty Collins's novel, The Copper Crucible, it not only tell you the history of that struggle to some extent, but what you know that's the, that's what it's about. It also tells you what it novels have got that ability, or, or art has got that ability to to give you that um, empathic or sympathetic feeling for what it was like for the, the workers to be going through that and the sorts of political questions that it throws up to them in Mount Isa in particular, um, it was because it was a, 
a, a one a one industry town. Everybody who was there was either a manager of the mines or a worker on the mines. It um, it threw up a, a very artificial social system, which nevertheless is a microcosm of um, capitalist society generally. Because on one side, you know, that, that Mount Isa was, and to some extent still is, split down the middle geographically, with the workers on one side and the managers on the other. So you know, you you can't ignore, or you can't you know it's 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 concretely present to you the the class differences of society and and how you know, your your place in the production um, system uh, determines how you're being the kind of life you're living and solidarity of amongst workers becomes a lot more um, starkly possible in the, in that circumstance and. And that um, that fed into the the fierceness of which the uh, the, the, the both classes, the, the the bosses and the workers, fought that particular struggle. So that's the example of, of Copper Crucible, and there's many others of, the, of of works that were based on specific struggles. Um, I suppose if you were looking for a um, a, a very first Queensland uh, working class novel, you could go probably go to um, a Working Man's Paradise by William Lane, um, and again that was about a specific, or based around a specific struggle, which was the 1890s Shearers disputes, um, which again were um, you know sort of uh, socially extremely exp uh, and, and historically extremely important uh, events in Queensland history um, that. Um, that workers and, and, and class struggle was 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 centrally, you know, part of, and that um, and that that a novel is able to bring alive uh, in ways that just reading a, a story about or reading a history about it does not. And welcome back to uh, Workers' Power here on 4 Z. where we're uh, with uh, Alan from the Brisbane Labor's History Association. And we just uh, listened to uh, Morton Bay uh, by Chloe and Jason Rowith. So that, that song takes us all the way back to the, to the beginning of, uh, of uh, you know, the written activism here in Australia. Just, just briefly on that, uh, Alan... Um, did this uh, did that Morton Bay was it was it a popular works uh, for workers in, in early history? That, that song that uh, we just heard and that tune that it's sung to that um, takes us back to the uh, mid twentieth century when uh, Communist Party writers were so um, were so uh, active in the sense that it was a version uh, recorded, found and recorded, um, and put, and set to that music, which was an old, um, like so many uh, folk songs, they tended to use old uh, tunes. That was an old Irish tune that Manifold put those words to. Um, yeah, so by by John Manifold, who was a, um, a poet very active in, in Brisbane, in Winter Manly, actually, where I grew up. Um, and um, And the thing about it, is that um, uh, Frank McNamara, or Frank the Poet, was a convict and his works um, 
were well known by other convicts and pretty much and outside that too he um pretty much as soon as you get the um the the, the convict system established in australia you start to get uh, uh productions by those convicts um now we might um be pushing a point to say that's uh working class literature on on the other hand it's a point worth pushing because what were the convicts they were the first that was that that, that was the beginning of um what we could call the working class in australia because on boats that the convicts were brought out in they uh there were not only um people there were the ideas in their heads and there was the class structure and the power structure that was in their um their their minds to reproduce here in australia such a an alien and and and, and distorted way of um organizing human society it was all there in the um in the boats that came out and uh when the convicts convict set, system was set up in australia um as it developed you um it, it uh, had to play the role not just of um you know being an outlet for the many people that uh english society decided they wanted to to incarcerate to the point of death or, or just to, to you know ex excise from society it also became the basis of the the new version or, or outpost of england that was being set up here in australia and that meant the economic system had to be constructed from the ground up and that meant that people who had no interest no no base no no interest at all it, it was not in their interest at all to become workers had to be forced to be workers now frank uh frank the poet was um was set out for um for larceny he was um uh not 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 a a model of um of a human being except that um you know you, you had to do what you had to do back there in england and uh, when he was out here in australia he got his share of what so many of them got and that was very very um scarifying and horrible violence is like so many of them his back was just um taken to the to the bone with lashes that was the way that the working class was created in australia and it's in his poetry that that um that violence the, that violent creation, that bloody creation of the working class is, is presented. The, um, the version of Morton Bay that, um, that Manifold put together and that, that is quite popular. Um, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if many of our listeners have heard that. I've even heard snatches of the song Morton Bay in the, um, the children's animated um, show um, Bluey. Uh, one of Bluey's um, neighbours is hanging out his washing, humming it. Um, so that's uh, the, the version of, of, of Morton Bay that we tend to hear uh, doesn't um, bring out as much as Frank McNamara's original writings, just how violent the, um, the convict system was. So it strikes me that uh, Morton Bay by Frank the Poet uh, is echoed in the words of Kev, Kev Carmody's song, Thou Shalt Not Steal, where Kev, who's a... Um, uh, you know, absolutely brilliant uh, Aboriginal poet and singer uh, wrote a song where which begins um, in 1788 down Sydney Cove. The first boat people land 
They said, sorry, boys, our gain's your loss. We're going to steal your land. And if you break our new British laws, for sure you're going to hang or work your life like convicts with chains on your neck and hands. Um, the, the link for me, one of the links that is, I think, too rarely uh, discussed between the white working class in Australia and the original black inhabitants and uh, original owners of this land is that we were both subjected to the same extreme violence in order to turn us into uh, workers, to, to force us to do what you wouldn't normally do if you had your choices. Um, the one, one of the few mentions in Karl Marx's work of Australia is a section in which he, um, he says that a lot of this violence that the convicts were subjected to to make, make them work for the, um, the expanding uh, uh, econ uh, economic uh, enterprises in Australia, the, uh, the, the, the rural um, uh, sheep properties and things that were being established, they, the, 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 the violence that they were made to, to uh, endure, to force them to stay on in those roles, those working roles, that was very similar to what had to be um, imposed on Aboriginals to make them do the same sort of thing because so much of the um, the labour that was put into creating uh, the uh, the rural industries that were the basis of Australia were done also by blacks. So... Um, so that's that, that's my my takeaway from uh, from Frank the poet's um, famous song Morton Bay. Well, we, we we might even play we play that song uh, quite regularly here on uh, Workers Power, and um, uh, and a shout out to our comrades out at Deebing Creek because uh, they they use a, the, the thou shalt not steal Deebing Creek as uh, one of their campaign titles and things like that. Um, Alan, if you haven't have you heard of the Deebing Creek? Struggle? I haven't. No, I haven't. So it's a, there was a mission out there, and and it was one of the um, first missions uh, that they rounded up uh, um, from all southeast Queensland, northern New South Wales, and that, uh, and they round them all up. Uh, it was uh, like about the same time as time as it started about the same time as the Shearers struck eighteen nineties. That mission out there started, and. Uh, uh, and it was. Uh, they also they put the Ipswich um, locals, uh, the Mianjin, the the the, the, the Yagara people. That they were um, hanging around in town um, and, and getting on the grub. Well, what, what else do you do? You know. Um, and, and so they made it so that it was like it's a fair walk from um, to from Deeping Creek to, to Ipswich. But they, yeah, they ended up rounding up a whole heap of people and uh, and put them out there, treated them absurdly for, for generations, and and then and then made them pay for the land and then took it back off them. But anyhow, there's a, they're, they're trying to develop it. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of history out there, and there's a lot of uh, cultural pain and, and stuff out there. And they're, they're, they're well, trying so there's to there's like graves out there, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. Like, and there's yeah. there's a cemetery out there, and and what they've done is they've got oh this small area around the cemetery we'll protect that, you know that you know we're all good for that. But uh, the, but there's unmarked graves everywhere, and and um, yeah. So it's a yeah it's a one out here. It's, it's right near here. I live at Ipswich, so 
it's a struggle that's dear to my heart. Um, yeah, the thing about working class literature too is it helps to build struggles and to give heart to those who are part of it. And that's what you've just told me is certainly an example of that. And um, now, in your notes, I found we're fast forwarding here to the eighties, but I found I found someone that had some remarkable similarities to myself. Now, great name, Bill. So his name was Bill Sutton. He he loves to hang around at level one of the four triple Z building, but but uh, when when he was around, it wasn't the four triple Z building, was it, Alan? It was the Communist Party of Australia's headquarters and there was a, um, a bookshop which was what you ran, walked into if you walked into that uh, that organisation and that bookshop was um, for many, many years run by a, a bloke called Bill Sutton who was very much a, uh, a working class man who, um, unlike some of the people in the party, um, would, uh, uh, had had politics that came from his, his life and... Uh, and came from uh, things that he had learned on the job, as apart from as opposed to learned from uh, from books or from from the party pamphlets and that sort of thing. And so he was a little bit of an unruly member of the, the party, he towed the line. But uh, when he um, when he did what he really loved to do, and that was to be there with books and to actually start to to do his own writing, he write stories that um, that encapsulated and uh, and included uh, elements of um, of working class culture in in the, the the language that he used and in the uh, attitudes that came through in the stories that go beyond um, any you know party lines and into um, you know the living culture of the of the working class of, of his generation um, and that uh, that uh, culture um, did include so, uh, influences from um, from you know political ideas uh, uh, apart from the Communist Party, and as um, I think I think I'm right in saying you guys know very well, there was uh, um, a strong uh, um, syndicalist uh, um, uh, international workers of the world uh, uh, element in um, Australian working class um, uh, life in the past and. Uh, and that tends to, even in writers like uh, Frank Hardy, that tends to come through. I think his um, novel Outcast of Fulgara uh, show that kind of a spirit. And uh, I think you can see that kind of a spirit coming through in one of um, Bill Sutton's stories in particular um, about uh, about uh, Herb, the, um, the bloke who was um, uh, an old wobbly. Um, and uh, Sutton presents um, Herb's um, attitudes in this story in such a way that he, um, at the end of the story, criticises a little bit from the Communist Party's point of view. But you can see that he's got a lot of uh, sympathy for the um, for the, uh, the the Wobblies, um, very very uh, pugnacious and anti-authoritarian uh, attitude. Um, I'm wondering whether we should um, read out a section, a segment of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, here's, here's a bit where uh, here's a bit from the start of that story by Bill Sutton. Oh yes, said Herb. I've been in the State Hotel. State Hotel? I queried. Herb looked at me with a mixture of amusement and scorn. Don't you know nothing? He said. State Hotel is the jail. I like talking to Herb, who was a real link with the past. 
He was the prince of all anarchists and had found a spiritual home in the IWW and that organisation had been at its best. Over 50 years later, he was still using IWW tactics. Every time he went into a bank to cash his pension cheque, he would terrify or embarrass the tellers by loudly proclaiming, it won't be long before the workers take this joint. He was also a master intriguer and joined the Labor Party to subvert that organisation. When an election day came around, Herb was allocated to a polling booth giving out how to vote cards. He altered the ALP voting tickets to give the Communist Party candidates second preference. He even made out a few specials which gave the Communist Party first preference and kept them in a side pocket for selected customers. Though he considered the Communist Party pretty weak, he thought they were best of a bad luck, a uh, bad lot. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Bill Sutton uh, was um, was a, a fixture, but um, of the Communist Party uh, when, when it uh, had its bookshop in that um, that building you're in now. Oh, so much uh, interesting. So I think we could have you on for another episode, and we probably will in the future, which is great. And talk about more history. But I've also know you, you've mentioned that you've got a couple of overlooked gems here. Now, you've mentioned the Copper Crucible. Now, the other one uh, that you, you, you've put here is Gatton Man by Merv Lilly. Can you, that's out near, but is that Gatton as in uh, at Gatton, the uh, area out near Ipswich? It certainly is, yeah. Now, um, the uh, because of um, Australia and particularly Queensland's um, rural um, uh, history, um, the um, a lot of the, the 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 sort of industrial working class uh, life that you'd, you'd probably tend to think of these days, or um, in the, the late twentieth century, as being what the working class was about, that wasn't really the case in the past um, because it was such a rural rurally based economy. Um, uh, hence the um, the importance of that 1890s uh, shearers strike in in um, uh, the history of Queensland. It was shearing. It was it was the sheep industry that was such a money spinner for the capitalists, and that's where the exploitation of uh, workers took place. So um, so you know, although we tend to think now of um, of people out in the country as being um, uh, you know, sort of small, uh, sort of identifying with um, the, the petty bourgeoisie, their small landowners, their farmers, or their, um, you know, they're, they're just, uh, you know, a, a small part of the working class. They were a major part of the working class in the past. So Gatton Man tells, although it's really, um, it's really two things that you, you seem a bit unusual. It's, it's partly a biography which doesn't sound like working-class writing. And it's partly a, uh, in a, 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 a different view of some very, very terrible murders that occurred out in Gatton. But it comes from Merv Lilly, who was a very, uh, not only a, a, a very accomplished uh, poetic writer, he's also a man who's been involved in a lot of working-class uh, struggles as a unionist over the time and someone who, as the husband of the, the communist writer, Dorothy Hewitt, um, was very politically uh, sophisticated indeed. And so the kind, of, um, the kind of biography that such a person would write 
um, exposes uh, the, to, to, to view uh, the, um, the dark side of uh, rural life for rural workers, for low-paid rural workers and their families that you won't find, um, you know, sort of celebrated in, in um, mainstream, um, uh, you know, uh, like the Courier Mail or, um, or any uh, retrospective, mainstream retrospectives telling you about the history of Queensland. So um, there's an element of, of realism and, and real life from the perspective of the bottom part of society that can come through in working class writing. And I just think that man is a, a good example of that. It's, it's, not, it's not what I like to read normally because it's, um, it's a story of extreme violence that, uh, that happened when uh, in the family of this uh, murderer. Uh, and, but it doesn't in any sort of um, simplistic way, but in a very thoroughgoing way, it tends to uh, talk about this, this real life or this true crime from in a way that uh, shows that violence was, uh, it was, was like the, the air that you had to breathe as um, a member of the lower classes in, uh, in, the late 20, in the early 20th century and the late 19th century. So um, I think that um, that working class writing, and that can include life writing of this type, um, can ex can ex explore uh, uh, the psychology, the the way it feels to be uh, a member of an oppressed class in a way that uh, just can't be um, can't be found in any other form of uh, of history writing. So although Although working class literature tends to have this big um, uh, overlap with history, I think it brings so much more to it to, to the extent that I think you don't you you really don't get a good idea of history if unless you read uh, you know the the productions of people who are working class themselves or have got that um, that knowledge and that focus in mind as they write the history. And perhaps uh, this might be a time for me to, to try to get a plug in for something that the Labor History Association has recently um, uh, set up, and that is the Stellanord Bursary, where we're encouraging people to apply the, the to, to um, get a, well, unfortunately, we're not rich and it's only a small amount of money, but um, we'd like to offer support of other in other ways, um, helping people with their research or um, you know, mentoring them or helping them in, in any way we can, and with a, a bit of money too, to um, to perhaps do their own writing. Um, again, because we're a history association, it tends to be we we had that in mind that you might want to do some working class uh, history, some labour history. It seems to me that that could that would very easily also apply to anybody who wants to just write in a more um, discursive and imaginative or personal way about their life, uh, because as I say, I think um, I think working class literature and working class and labour history um, are, are stronger together. And so, um, yeah, the uh, the Stella Nord bursary, the, the inaugural uh, grant will be made sometime after um, the application period finishes in the thirty first of August. And if anybody would like to. Um, get a bit of assistance in doing their own writing as 
as workers, well, um, hopefully we can we'd, you'd, you'd consider um, making an application for the Stellanord bursary, which is um, applications for which can be found on the Prison Labor History website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, um, talking to us about uh, working class literature and um, being a part of uh, Workers' Power and uh, Brisbane Labor History Association. We really, really love having having you you on and uh, and uh, we feel that this is an important part of uh, uh, the struggle to um, you know learn from the history. Uh, no, that, was, that was really good, Alan. Um, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to yes, say yes. on air before we like close down the interview? If you if you were interested seriously in the question of uh, working class literature, there is um, places. There are places to go in, in academic terms. There's um, there's the uh, the work of uh, Ian Sison, who was. Um, uh, who studied at the University of Queensland, like me, under Carol Ferrier. And uh, at Carol's um, in, uh, re request, he um, started to work, to work on on the um, on building up working class literature into the, the status of a, an academic subject, which he has been running successfully for many years now down at the University of Wollongong. Now, um, if, uh, no, nothing of which I've been talking about has got it's got a patch on anything that uh, that Ian would have um, produced over the years as as an academic with a special interest in working class literature and uh, anything that he's written. He's he's actually um, he formed a a, a, a a lot of expense to himself and no profit a publishing company called the Vulgar Press, which uh, which published a lot of. Um, uh, stuff by worker writers. Uh, so I, I do strongly recommend uh, that you look into the um, the projects and the the writing and the academic uh, um, uh, teaching done by uh, Ian Sison if you're interested in the subject. Thank you to the uh, Brisbane Labor History Association. And uh, they will be back again in August. Uh, um, as always, the first Tuesday of each month, we do uh, Brisbane Labor History Association. Our comrades, come on and, and give us a little bit of the history of uh, working class struggle. Right, on to working class struggles. We'll, we're going to get into uh, workers' action now here on uh, Workers' Power on 4ZZZ. Right, uh, first up... So we're going to have to, uh, you know, we've got some nice stories written here, but I'm going to have to summarise them just to, uh, uh, so that we can fit it all in. Uh, the first one is um, there's warehouses uh, workers at uh, Best and Less have uh, unionised. And so after 56 years without an agreement, workers at Best and Less Eastern Creek Warehouse have fought for and won the right to have a say over their pay and conditions. Woo! Yes, uh, most warehouse workers at Best and Less are paid as little as $21.78 per hour, uh, much lower than most unionised warehouses in their area. Uh, these other union warehouses have inspired Best and Less workers to fight for their fair share of the $60 million profit Best and Less have made this year alone. And these members are ready to fight for for 25 see how i nearly said 15 because over in america that's what they're fighting for uh they're fighting for 15 over there but uh, oh. 
uh, these workers. And I notice uh, that that um, uh, Rafu has uh, some of their members are fighting for twenty five dollars as well, which is around about the the bare minimum of a living wage. Yeah, it's um, not much to ask for. All right, so those essential workers who work during the pandemic to keep our families clothed and warm, it's time they got a living wage. So uh, you can find out more about them in the United Workers Union uh, Facebook page and website. All right, uh, we'll we'll talk about uh, the Disrupt Land Forces raising money. We'll talk about that next week. Okay. Can, 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 but there's a fundraiser. Go to the Disrupt uh, Land Forces uh, uh, Facebook page um, and donate where you can, but we will cover that extensively next week. Might even have a chat with Andy, I think, because mm. Andy, Andy will have a fine there. Um, so let's uh, rush on. And here's a, a story that not many would be reporting on, so we will we'll report it. Hamilton Community Pantry uh, saved uh, for now. Um, and this comes uh, to us from the Green Left Weekly. Uh, uh, Calypso, can you...? Oh, I think Jackson hasn't had much to ja- say. OK, go Jackson. Sure thing. So an, an 11th hour reprieve means the Hamilton Community Pantry has been saved for now. The pantry provides food, clothing, blankets, sanitary products and other essentials to anyone in need and is replenished by community members, often responding to social media posts. A motion to reverse plans by the Newcastle Council to close the service was passed at its 29th of June meeting. The resolution moved by Labour councillors calls on the council to work with Food Not Bombs and other agencies on ways to support the appropriate, safe and clean provision of items and services that are needed, like the pantry. People mobilised when closure notices were posted in the pantry's lockers. Uh, Food Not Bombs activist Tom Wickett told Green Left that the pantry and free food services service held on Mondays and Wednesday evenings is more about building community and maintaining commons than being a charity. Yeah, so this is something that we actually... This was our scalabag of the week last week, and it uh, looks like they've been successful in fighting back the council and uh, keeping their uh, service open to... That- Help people. That's right. Yeah, they were our sca- the whole council was our scallywag of the week. Hey, isn't it? I, I think it's great, and we're going to claim it anyhow. I, I always claim these things. Isn't it uh, ironic? No, it's not quite. Yeah, ironic that uh, that so many uh, uh, bosses are called scallywag of the week, and then they backflip. Yeah. I think it's a pressure <laughs> yeah. of, of workers' power. And I think that's why you need to support four triple Z. That's right, yeah. Supporting 4ZZZ is a great thing to do. You get that warm inner glow that uh, was mentioned earlier in, in the show. And uh, you can do that by going to uh, 4ZZZ.org.au forward slash support or head on, uh, or, or, or you can phone us up at 32521555. Now, unfortunately, due to COVID, uh, reception is closed, but. Uh, um, you might get a hold of them or leave a, leave a message and they'll, they'll get back to you. But, uh, yeah, come and be a part of uh, the, the world's um, greatest radio station. It allows us to bring attention to stories like this and then uh, action happens. Now, there's one here that I noticed that Jackson must have snuck this one in here, right? Um, 
But uh, good on Jackson for doing it because um, it's from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. So uh, I, I have to do a bit of a disclaimer that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm part of RAFU. But, uh, um, yeah, Jackson, you, you, you found this story and wanted to uh, report on it. Can you go through it for us? Uh, sure. So the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union has made history by securing the first protected action ballot order for a retail workplace outside the meat industry. Under Fair Work Commission rules, protected action ballots must be undertaken before workers can take industrial action. Rafu has been working with workers at Better Red Than Dead, a bookshop in Newtown, since late last year. They've been fighting for an enterprise bargaining agreement that includes formal contracts, a workplace safety and sexual harassment policy, and to be paid a living wage. Better Red Than Dead management have been unwilling to negotiate, threatening staff with cease and desist letters, and demanding two workers attend show-cause meetings where their jobs were threatened. RAFU Secretary Josh Cullinan told Greenleft in May that management was doing everything it could to delay and frustrate the bargaining process. RAFU applied for the ballot in June and and it was approved by the Fair Work Commission on the 22nd of June after Better Red Than Dead management did not object. Uh, Workers will be balloted over three weeks on whether they can take industrial action. Well, workers should not have to overcome these legal hurdles just to access their human rights, Rafu said on the 23rd of June. The union said that the retail sector, in which 1.5 million workers work, has not taken industrial action in decades. Meanwhile, Rafu announced on the 25th of June that the majority of bookshop workers had voted to bargain with Reading's Bookshop in Melbourne. The vote was passed with 50.3% in favour. Workers, readings workers are campaigning for an EBA to secure better wages, working conditions and penalty rates. Now that the ballot has passed, they are waiting to see if readings management will agree to negotiate. Despite the various legal hurdles and bureaucratic difficulties, workers have to jump through to secure their rights. Rafu has pledged to continue to fight to change these bad laws. That's awesome. That's my union, comrades, and that's what we do, you know. Like, get stuff done. Now, now, there's there's an expression that goes around. Like, we're we're not going to secure good deals by a wit, charm, and intelligence. No, no one has ever got a better deal with wit, charm, and intelligence. There's only one way, proven way, to get a good deal from their bosses, and that's to withdraw your labour. And uh, that's that's what's uh, happening there now. That that could mean any number of things, you know, like uh, uh, better red than dead. Um, it, it could mean uh, things like uh, they do um, uh, social media in their own personal time. They could just stop doing that. So, like a work to rule or things like this, you know. But um, let's hope that the, you know. Uh, uh, let's let's hope they don't need to strike. And the boss says, "Oh, geez, oh, I'm taking these threats seriously, and I'm going to give you a living wage." Damn right. Damn straight. Okay. Well, um, just there is one thing here that I wanted to mention. Like they said that uh, uh, retail workers haven't taken industrial action in decades. I find that hard to believe like uh, I assume they've done their research and they haven't taken any official or noted industrial action however I would imagine that like small scale um, 
more secret industrial action has been happening all the time everywhere yeah yes but uh th- this is more that uh, that was approved by our fair work commission and and, yeah. and these people can can strike if necessary uh, but of course that's that's not necessarily how we should be measuring industrial action through the fair work commission true very much yeah. true true but, yeah so this is a this is but still yeah this is a good um step for like to actually make it public and official um for them it it's, it's easier as well to win in that way now i do sometimes i do uh, to, i will um uh, seek uh, clarification from our comrades in the brisbane labor history association it um but uh yeah they're watching this very very closely as well so uh because this is making history so uh uh, yeah, they're watching it. I will, I will have a chat with them and see see what sort of uh, evidence that we can find that uh, that uh, of any industrial action that has been done by retail workers. So uh, yes, okay. So we're going to uh, move on to international workers' action uh, straight into it. And uh, um, the, our first story is a coordinated hunger strike across a seven. Can- Canadian uh, prison honours Indigenous children from, oh, our comrades at Abolition Media Worldwide. Prisoners at seven prisons and jails in Canada have announced a coordinated hunger strike on July 1st, Canada Day. The strike was organised in response to the recent recovery of over a thousand unmarked graves at residential school sites across the country. At the Edmonton Institution, a Mexican security federal prison for men in Edmonton, Alberta, Indigenous prisoners have orange hearts posted on their cell doors, memorialising the thousands of Indigenous children who died in residential schools throughout so-called Canada. On July 1, they plan to take action in honour of the children engaging in a one-day hunger strike alongside prisoners from Saskatchewan Penitentiary and another federal institution, Regina, Saskatoon and Pine Grove Correctional Centres, three provincial provincial jails in Saskatchewan and Fraser Valley Institution for Women, a multi-level prison in British Columbia, according to the prisoner advocate Sherry Mayer with Beyond Prison Walls Canada. Matthew Campbell-Williams, a representative of the, the Toronto Prisoner Rights Project, confirms that one range of prisoners at the Toronto South Detention Centre is also participating in the strike. In late May, the Tecumlip Swabam First Nation confirms the unmarked graves of 215 Indigenous children on the site of the former Kamloops Residential School. In the months since, hundreds of additional unmarked graves have been confirmed through the use of ground-penetrating radar, 104 at the site of Brandon Residential School in Manitoba, 751 at Marieville Residential School in Saskatchewan, and most recently, 182 at the St. Eugene's Mission Residential School in British Columbia. And there will be many more to come. While many Canadians were shocked by the recent news, Indigenous peoples have long grappled with these truths, and many observe that Canadians should also know better. In 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission made clear that over 3,000 children died at residential schools. Recent estimates put the number much higher, between 15,000 to 25,000, according to retired senator and the head of the TRC, Murray Sinclair. The residential school system in Canada 
referred to as the boarding school system in the US, was established in the 1880s and ran until 1996 when the last institution closed. Ostensibly, schools, these carceral facilities were put in place by the Canadian government and largely administered administrated through churches. In its final report, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission of Canada concluded the system was a form of cultural genocide, engineering the removals of Indigenous children from their lands, communities, families and cultures with brutal assimilation ends. In response to the recent news, Indigenous communities and grassroots organisers have urged municipalities and individuals to Hashtag Cancel Canada Day on July 1, the date of the Canadian Federation in 1867, which is a celebrated day across Canada as a national holiday. In addition to the calls for protests, four Catholic churches located on tribal lands have been burnt down in recent weeks and one was painted with a message commemorating the children's lives. Through their planned hunger strike, prisoners at Prairie Institutions and beyond have issued their own call to cancel Canada Day. A Twitter account run by an anonymous prisoner participating in the organising of the strike at Edmonton Institution posted, On July 1st, 2021, some of us are standing in solidarity for these innocent children. I ask all fellow prisoners and those in community to do the same. In a response to this call, a solidarity hunger strike among outside supporters is being planned by Beyond Prison Walls Canada, True North Radio and Inmates for Humane Conditions. Close to 100 people have indicated their support for the event on Facebook. We are hunger striking for the ones who have lost their lives and also the ones who survived and are still going through this stuff still. We need to celebrate the ones who survived this too. The anonymous Edmonton Institution Twitter account further explained. Cherie Sutherland Casey's, who is incarcerated at Pine Grove Correctional, announced her intention to participate in the strike along with her sister, Shailen Sutherland, who is also incarcerated at Pine Grove. Their mother, Dina Casey's, will also participate from outside the prison walls in a ceremonial fast. We will be starting our hunger strike at midnight for all the Indigenous children who have perished in what my mother calls residential school torture camps, Sutherland Casey's explained on Facebook. I ask that you wear orange shirts come July 1, 2021, Sutherland Casey's wrote. Abolish, decolonize, obliterate all colonial victory days by standing in solidarity with my sister and I and also my fellow sisters and brothers who were locked beyond prison walls. The call to wear orange rather than the red and white of the Canadian flag is significant. In Canada, orange shirts are worn in commemoration of the Indigenous children taken to residential schools. Orange Shirt Day, September 30, was inspired by residential school survivor Phyllis Webstad of the Swabem community, whose story speaks to the trauma of the system. When I got to the mission, they stripped me and took away my clothes, including the orange shirt my granny had bought for me. I never wore it again, Webstad explained. I didn't understand why they wouldn't give it back to me. It was mine. The colour orange has always reminded me of that and how my feelings didn't matter, how no one cared and how I felt like I was worth nothing. All of us little children were crying and no one cared. 
On July 1, prisoners across prairies will unite to show their care for children who were taken to residential schools, some of whom were from their own families and communities. Many prisoners have deeply impacted by the residential school system as Molly Swain, Optimacy Exclu, and member of the Freelance Free Peoples explained in an interview with Perilous. It is really important that we remember that a lot of folks who are currently incarcerated or have been incarcerated are survivors or international intergenerational survivors of the residential school system. This is not something that's an abstract grief. It's not an abstract issue. It's not an abstract form of solidarity. That's distant. It's part of people's realities on the inside. Swain also observed the connection between residential schools and prisons, underscoring the structural similarities between the two. When you read survivor memoirs, when you read about what residential schools were actually doing, the structure of them and the form that they took, it is very, very clear that the prisons are contemporary extensions of residential schools. Within these new residential schools, as prisons are commonly understood, Indigenous prisoners will come together on July 1 in a powerful act of remembrance for Indigenous children whose lives were stolen by carceral institutions. What they're doing is a really important gesture of commemoration and mourning and grief, Swain commented. People on the inside are able to see that you can't just have business as usual with a few thoughts and prayers. You need to take powerful action, however you can. To acknowledge these horrors, to mourn them, and to commemorate them. Right on, yes. So that's why you've been uh, seeing uh, pictures of uh, churches burning on the news. And that's about all, all we get to hear uh, in the mainstream news uh, over and here. Is nothing about the thousands of bodies they found on these residential schools. That's right. And uh, and all, we can draw similarities uh, here uh, with our First Nations uh, peoples here, even out of Deeming Creek where they're, they're, they're trying to uh, get the uh, uh, ground-penetrating radar to, to, to find... Uh, um, they've found disturbances and and uh, the developers and the state government are ignoring the evidence. So Just like the Australian government is trying to cover this up, the Canadian government is trying really hard to cover up the, the truth about what happened at these residential schools, but there are thousands of bodies that say otherwise. Right on. Well, we've run out of time. We've got another story there that we might report on uh, next week. Uh, uh, an uprising against the monarchy in Eswana, Eswani. Um, Eswatini. Eswatini. Now, I'll quickly go through the events that we've got lined up here that are important. Uh, we're going to rely on listeners to go and do their own research. I sound like a right-wing nut job there. But go, go and find out more about... Do your research and find out more about these important events. There's a NADOC March Mianjin uh, that's uh, on this Friday uh, from 9.30am. But at 8am there is a flag ceremony, uh, flag raising ceremony at Yagara Hall over at Musgrave Park. Um, at 9.30 there will be speeches at Parliament House. And at 11am there will be March from there to Musgrave. So... Um, head out. You can find uh, um, info at the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre Facebook page. Now, there's a, uh, a, a religious freedom bills a protest coming up on Saturday, uh, 14th of August. Uh, we will talk more about that one a bit next week uh, um, and let you know all about it. Now, there's a, a Greens ban film screening at Common House uh, next Tuesday, 13th of July 2021 at 
30. Um, it's a screening of the 1985 documentary Rocking the Foundations. I've watched I'm excited this. to see I, that. I've seen it. I might even come in and watch it with comrades. But, uh, yeah, that, that's a good one. Next Tuesday... Uh, uh, we might even get someone in in, in from Common House to it. Uh, well, we could we could always get mirrors because we're all all members of Common House. We're all members. Okay, there's another event: uh, a cashless welfare debit cards a lived experience. This is a uh, other facts and stats. This is an online event tonight at seven thirty. You can find the Zoom link at a Life Facebook page. Um, it's featuring Catherine Wilkes, who's uh, a comrade of ours and been on our show, and uh, um, yeah, who's the leader and coordinator of the No Cashless Welfare Debit Card. And they've also got Amanda Smith uh, from the Say No Seven. That's tonight. So go to the Life Facebook page. Um, and uh, I think I rushed through them quite well. And uh, Scallywag of the Week. Scallywag of the Week. A I, lot of scallywags. We've got a do. lot of scallywags. But uh, our, our, the story at the top of the show, back back to the beginning of the show, um, was uh, a whole heap of coppers who, who, who thought that they could uh, drive around at 156 kilometres an hour um, uh, pursuing a worker who couldn't afford to pay their rego. And um, ACAB. Those, uh, ACAP. Yep, those uh, coppers earn our uh, award for Scallywag of the Week. Okay. Oh, I could take a We've got, like, I've got no seconds to spare. I'm going, we're going to go over to uh, Z-Line's uh, time by about 20 seconds. So uh, stick around for that. You'll get the, uh, the, the professional news brought to you by our team in Brisbane Lines. Um, so stick around from that and... Uh, yeah, we will uh, see you next Tuesday here on Workers' Power on 4 Z. I am a native of the land of Erin. I was early banished from my native shore On the ship Columbus went circular sailing And left behind me one I adore of a band We were bound for Sydney, our destination, and every day must iron And when I arrived, twas in Port Jackson, and I thought my days would happy be. three
on my legs I wore And my back from flogging was lacerated And of times painted with crimson gore Oh, Morton Bay, you'll find no equal Norfolk Island nor emu plains At Castle Hill, or Kirsten Gale